You are listening to a message from Southview Church, located right outside of Nashville in Spring Hill, Tennessee. Now here's our featured sermon of the week. What I want us to focus on today is the last chapter of the book of John. This would be the 21st chapter of the book of John. This is the last chapter of the Gospels, right? So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that's a grouping in the New Testament known as the Gospels. And what the Gospels are, are the narrative stories of Jesus' life and ministry. In fact, it's what we have that describes Jesus to us that we know and understand. And, you know, you have to imagine, imagine your life, where it is right now, being condensed down into a couple hundred pages, like the size of a, of a, of a novel, right? How much of what has actually happened in your life moment by moment could fit into a couple hundred pages, right? So this is what we have with Jesus though. What we with a kind of more of a Western mindset would like is that every morsel of food that he ate was documented, right? Every word that he spoke was documented. If he stubbed his toe, it was documented. Everything is documented so that we have thousands and thousands and thousands of pages to look at from every possible angle. In a more Eastern mindset, we get pictures, we get stories that tell us a lot more than if all those details were filled in. And so Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John introduce us to the Savior by giving us scene after scene after scene after scene that collected together give us a cohesive picture of the character and nature of who Jesus was, but leaves plenty for us to examine and ponder and meditate upon and press into and search for. And so what we have are different scenes. And John chapter 21, the final scene in the Gospels, like like after John, that's it. Like fade to black, roll the credits, move to the book of Acts. And from there, we move into the church era, and from there, we move into letters that sort of begin to create a theology around who Jesus was and what he did. So what we have is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and what we're focusing on today is the last scene in the Gospels, the 21st chapter of John. And so the scene opens in the Galilee region. The Galilee region was where Jesus lived. Like he, his adult hometown was the city of Capernaum. And so this scene opens up really close to Capernaum on the Sea of Galilee. We had just come out of the crucifixion story, right? The passion narrative. So Jesus was crucified. He was tried. He was buried. He rose from the dead. This all happened in Jerusalem. Our scene opens 90 miles to the north in the region of the Galilee. And Truly, then and now, the difference between the Galilee and Jerusalem is profound. They are worlds apart, even though they are 90 miles apart. Totally different feeling between the regions. And so everything that had happened that was so brutal and that we witnessed in the Passion narrative happened in Jerusalem, but now the scene opens 
in the Galilee. Peter and many of the disciples had moved back to the Galilee. They were staying there. The scene opens. It's nighttime. And Peter says, I'm going fishing. And that's not an unusual thing for Peter or any of them to say they were professional fishermen. That's This is what they had done. So Peter's going fishing. It's nighttime. They go fishing at nighttime because the fish come up closer to the surface at night. And their nets can get them. But in the day with the sun shining down, the fish go deeper and the nets can't get that deep. And so they fish at night and they have fished all night and... Now daybreak is coming, right? A little light in the sky. The sun's beginning to prepare to come up. And the men are finishing their evening of fishing, and they're rowing toward the shore. And they can see on the shore that there's a guy there. And he's got a little charcoal fire going. And they can see that in the distance as they come to shore. And then this guy stands up, and he's like, did you catch anything? Which wouldn't be unusual. They're coming in from a night of fishing. He's got a fire going. Maybe he wants to buy a fish for breakfast. But as they get closer, they say, no. And he says, try the other side. And they do. And... For detailed people that really want every detail, we get one detail, they got 153 fish. So they cast their net on the other side, they get 153 fish, they pull them in, they're looking a little bit closer because this sounds familiar. And one of them says, it's the Lord. Peter, who has, according to the Gospel of John, stripped off his, like he's wearing a loincloth, He's in his underwear. He's been working all night. He throws on his robe. He jumps into the water. It's the Lord. And he swims the last hundred yards to the shore. And they pull in the fish. And this is a beautiful sort of closing of a loop. We're in the final scene, right? This is the final scene of the Gospels. And for Jesus to say, try the other side, was how they met in the first place. Right, So Jesus had previously told them, try the other side earlier, several years earlier when they first met. And they obeyed him and they caught a whole bunch of fish just like this. And they drug all those fish to the shore and then they left them there. Like Jesus had given them a miraculous sign and had they been able to sell all those fish, maybe they could have paid their taxes. Maybe they could have repaired something. Maybe they could have got ahead a little bit. But according to the Gospels, what they did was they left everything and followed Jesus from that moment forward. And so this is a beautiful kind of closing of that loop because he gave it all back. They left everything and he gave it all back. Before he departed, it's beautiful. These are the kinds of things that we can get when we only have a scene. When we can just ponder and meditate upon the character of Jesus, we see that he's so gracious, he's so kind, he's so good. 
He's so kind that he spends his resurrection cooking breakfast for his friends. It's beautiful. Right? And so here he is, a little charcoal fire going. There's some bread there, according to the Gospel of John. They get some fish, so they're having breakfast. They're sitting around this fire. And Jesus looks at Peter and says, do you love me, Peter? And Peter says he does. And then Jesus says, feed my sheep. We probably all know this story like backward and forward, so it doesn't seem like a weird thing. But imagine somebody saying, do you love me? And then them saying, feed my sheep. What do you say to that? Yeah. <laughs> like, how do you respond? You just keep chewing and shake your head like, mm, I get it. Even though you don't exactly understand what's happening here. And so... Peter keeps chewing and shaking his head, yes, yeah, and everybody's starting to pay attention. And then Jesus looks at Peter again and says, do you love me, Peter? And Peter's like, yeah, you know I love you. And Jesus says, take care of my lambs. Again, like, what do you say to that? Like, how do you respond to that? Everybody's paying attention now. Like, all we can hear is chewing. And that's weird, right? Like, that's weird when there's that pregnant pause and you're in a group of people around a table and everybody's chewing, but somebody said something that nobody knows what to say to. And so we just keep kind of chewing and looking down and like all of a sudden the silverware noises and like all of this stuff is happening in this moment because Jesus keeps asking Peter this question and then he does it again. Do you love me, Peter? And according to the Gospel of John, this breaks Peter's heart. He knows days before he denied he even knew Jesus. He knows what's going on here. And he says, you know everything, Lord. You know I love you. And Jesus says, feed my sheep. It's so strange and so beautiful and so full of possibility and then according to the Gospel of John, after Jesus does this three times, and by the way, this is a place, like there's a place that has been commemorated for over 1700 years that pilgrims have gone to to witness this particular event. Because this is thought to be like the restoration of Peter. Peter denied Jesus three times, and so Jesus goes into that wound three times, giving Peter instructions on like how he is to proceed from here. And so there's a place called Peter's primacy. Like it's one of the only places along the sea of Galilee that you can kind of get right. Like on the, there's like a little beach there and the sea of Galilee is not really a beachy kind of lake. It's like there's reeds that grow all the way around it. It's so it's hard to kind of get right down to the water unless you're on a boat. This is one of those places that you can actually kind of go right down onto the beach and, you know, grab some shells or rocks or put your hand in the water or wade in the water or walk on the water, whatever you prefer and or whatever you're willing to go for. I tried to walk, but I sank. And so I have a ways to go. And I realized that. But it's just a beautiful place where you can sort of see this scene. You can see the boat coming in. You can see this little charcoal fire. There's a little chapel there to commemorate this. And so 
Jesus has asked Peter, do you love me three times? That's gotten a little strange there. And then Jesus tells Peter, like the next thing after, do you love me? He tells Peter how he's going to die. This is such a strange, beautiful story. It's such a strange, amazing closing scene to the Gospels. And so he tells Peter, by which death he will glorify God, according to the book of John, which is probably not what he was expecting and probably what we wouldn't expect either. And so there's so much going on in this story. But what becomes deeply fascinating is how Peter responds to this information. So Peter's been asked three times, does he love Jesus? He's responded that he does. His heart has been broken, like he knows what's going on, and then Jesus tells him how he's going to die. And then we pick up, got to put my glasses on. We pick up with the uh, 20th verse of John chapter 21. This is Peter's response to all that just happened. Do you love me? This is how you're going to die. Peter responds, Peter turned around and saw behind them the disciple Jesus loved. The one who had leaned over to Jesus during supper and asked, Lord, who will betray you? So we're talking about John here. So Peter gets told how he's going to die. Peter responds by looking at John. Peter asked Jesus, what about him, Lord? All of a sudden, we can find ourselves in this story. Because all of a sudden, this closing scene becomes a lesson in comparison. This is the path I have for you. What about him, Lord? Yeah. All of a sudden, we realize this is us, too. We're moving through our lives. We hit the wilderness season, and everything is what about them? Why did they get to get away with this? Why did they... <laughs> not have to suffer the way that I do? Why do they have it easier than I do? All of a sudden, our identity is wrapped up in, what about them? Peter says, what about him, Lord? And Jesus responds, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? As for you, Follow me. What is that to you? As for you, follow me. Even as I say that quote from the book of John, that starts coming up in our hearts and our minds because we all have a that and we all probably have more than one of them. What is that to you? As for you, follow me. When that 
becomes something that keeps us from following Jesus, that is a problem. Right? So when that is allowed free access to our lives, when we are pulled into comparison continually, and we're continually saying, what about them? We very easily pick up an offense, an offense toward God for letting them have it easier than us, an offense for, toward them for being more lucky than we are. And that offense gets in our hearts. And when that offense gets in our hearts and it gets left there, it will turn into bitterness. Then that keeps us from following Jesus. Then that is a problem. And when that is something that many people adopt so that that is something for all of us, crazy things can happen. In the 1500s, during the Middle Ages, there was a, well, this is during the Swiss Reformation, so there's a whole rethink going on in the church. And there was a group of people that emerged known as the Anabaptists. And the Anabaptists had done the research, read the Bible, and they began to believe that the way water baptism was working was incorrect. And they determined that the way the church had been doing it was not the way that it had been done during the time of Jesus. And so they believed that the, the way baptism is done properly is that a person gets into the water and they go like all the way under the water and they come all the way back up out of the water, representing a spiritual reality that's happening. They are dying. They are being buried. They are being resurrected. And only a person who could actually make this choice and know what they were choosing to do could do this. We can go like, yes, I agree with that. That does not sound so strange to us right now. Many of the Christian traditions do things this way, but this was new. This was a different way of doing it at this time. And so the way that the church for a thousand years previous to this had been baptizing was to baptize babies as quickly as possible. That is still a war today about how it's done properly and how it actually works. During the Middle Ages, infant mortality was a problem. And so people wanted their, like, be, since they believed that baptism was their salvation, they wanted their children to be saved and have an assurance that if they died, they would go to heaven. But when the Anabaptists did the research and came to believe this, they're called Anabaptists because that means re-baptizers. And so they were like re-baptizing people who had been baptized when they were kids. But in effect, what they were saying at large was none of the baptisms for the last 1,000 years worked which means nobody's saved. That's a problem. 
And so in response to this problem, many Anabaptists were drowned. If Jesus wanted to resurrect them and prove that that's the correct way to do baptism, so be it. But they weren't going to negate all the baptisms for the last thousand years, and so they were drowned in the name of Jesus. When that becomes a problem that keeps us from actually following Jesus, then that is a problem. And it will only grow among people and individuals if we recognize it. It would be hard to read all the scenes in the Gospels, right? all the different clips that we have, understanding the character and nature of Jesus, and imagining a clip in the Gospels in which Jesus drowned somebody. Right? It's hard to imagine that in the Gospels, as we get to know who Jesus is, that we could ever imagine him saying, in my name, drown these people. Right? He was more about setting captives free. When that becomes a problem for a lot of us, crazy things can happen, including Christians drowning Christians in the name of Jesus. That's how backwards things can get. But that can be anything. We're thinking of that right now. That can be that we go to the grocery store and somebody steals our parking place. So we got to park in the back and we are so angry. We take a picture of that person's car just in case we need to post it on iHeart Spring Hill with the beginning, hey y'all. We finally get into the grocery store. We're so angry. We hope we possibly can't run into that person. We are throwing things into our cart. <clears throat> that has become a problem that has kept us from even being available to following Jesus. When that becomes a problem that keeps us from following Jesus, that is a problem. That can be that we come home from work, it's been a long day, we're a little exhausted, we walk in the door, somebody says something sideways. Then that becomes a problem to us. And that problem can compound until within 20 minutes we aren't speaking to each other for a week. That's a problem. When that becomes something that keeps us from following Jesus, then that is a problem. That can be an addiction. That can be a compulsion towards something or towards somebody, a pull towards like something that's not healthy. When it's something that will actually keep us from following Jesus, then that is a problem. And we all have a that. And so, what is that to you? As for you, follow me. 
that is the closing scene of the Gospels. This is how the story ends, at least as far as the narratives go. It's hard to imagine that's by accident. So we have this scene, and it's beautiful, and it most of the time focuses on Peter, and it is focusing on Peter, but mostly we look at the restoration of Peter. Do you love me? When Peter's response to Jesus giving him advanced words, like a prophetic word that he didn't want to, like we love our prophetic words, but we wouldn't like it when it was like, here's how you're going to die. Right? But it was a prophetic word. And it was the truth. And his response was, what about him? This is so much of our own story. And so we're going to close here. But in a few minutes, I mean, there are prayer teams that are trained. And sometimes in a talk like this, when we're talking about that, that means something to you. You know what that is. You know what it is that is keeping you from following Jesus. Sometimes there, we just need a witness. Sometimes we just need to stand in the moment with somebody else who loves us and will pray for us, who will just be here to witness the moment that you let that go. And so that will happen in just a couple of minutes. I'm more of a ponderer than a run-to-the-front kind of guy. And so that may be something that you need to think about over the coming days. If we could just understand that this is the last thing Jesus says, literally, after this, John simply says, if everything could be written that Jesus ever did, it would take all of the books in the world just like any of our lives, that is the fade to black. The last thing Jesus says can rescue us. Can you imagine? Just think about it. How much energy would you reclaim and how much of your life would you get back if you inserted those final words before you do something, before you say it, what is that to you? Because usually we are reacting to something in our lives, but if we asked ourselves, what is that to me? Will this keep me from following Jesus? Then that is a problem. If we could just remember these last words of Jesus and put them before we act, multiplied things would come back to us in our lives because we would not be wasting energy on things that will not help us follow Jesus. And so as we close today, what is that to you? As for you, follow me. And so, Jesus, we thank you for an opportunity to come together and consider things like this. And we thank you for the scenes that we have in the Gospels that allow us to know your nature and your character and also what you thought was important. And so we're paying attention that you thought it was important that this be the last word, the parting shot. 
What is that to you? And we realize that that is a lot to us. And it keeps us from following you. And we repent. And we reject those things and invite your Holy Spirit to lead us into all truth. Come Holy Spirit, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening to Southview Church. Southview Church is a non-denominational, multicultural, multi-generational, Holy Spirit-filled and led community. We believe that who the Son sets free is truly free. If you would like to connect with us further, check us out at southview.cc and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.